you have to basically identify and assess what are the root causes of the problem, clearly nail it down. And in that process, you need to communicate, regardless of the size of the organization, large or small. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast. Welcome, everyone, to this great episode. This is probably my favorite episode of This Much I Know, because in this episode, I get to interview my dad. Now, you're wondering, why am I interviewing my dad? Well, it turns out my dad actually has quite a history, and, and a history that I'm hoping he will share with us for the benefit of very specific types of circumstances, which are companies that are going through a hard time and need to effectively restructure. Now, the reason why is because my dad's done quite a bit of restructurings himself, and I'll let him introduce a little bit about himself in, in a second. But, to, he, you know, it's always awkward talking about yourself. So I'm going to do some of it for you, Dad. Um, so he's done 11 restructurings to date. Uh, his largest one had 17,000 employees. His smallest one had 200 employees. And, you know, it's, it's a big breadth of, of, of companies and industries as well. I mean, I know you've done oil and gas and you've done telecoms. So you've done quite a bit of, of different industries. And I know that within that, you've come up with some lessons, which I know you've, you've shared with many people in the past. And, and I know that you're working on um, some, some product, maybe a book, who knows, that will summarize this. So with that, uh, I want to welcome you to the podcast. As, as I said, the coolest podcast ever, because I get to interview you. Uh, maybe for the audience, you can share just a little bit more details about yourself and, and kind of some of the things that you've done. Oh, thank you. and honored to be in your show. Um... I'm, uh, you can see, uh, a little bit more senior, but uh, I uh, studied as an electrical engineer, majoring in telecom and computer science, and then uh, went to work. Uh, my first job was uh, for a telephone company in a country in Central America. And I studied as a field engineer and uh, basically doing, you know, dealing with tons of people uh, as a construction supervisor. You know, in a couple of years, I, in less than four years, I was the chief engineer, you know, responsible for all the engineering and construction of the company. And believe it or not, at the age of 28, I was the CEO of the company. You know, this was a 5,000 people company. And, uh, you know, of course, I was probably the youngest of all the senior management team. You know, most of the members of the senior management team were 20 years older than me. And. But that's, uh, that was my case, and, um, and it was my first case of restructuring without much knowledge. So I say I made many, 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 many mistakes. But at the end, I uh, succeeded in the restructuring. And um, after that, I went to further schooling. I went to a business school in Boston. When I say, well, I think I know about the art of, let me find out a little bit more about the science of restructuring and so I went for a master degree and a, and a PhD in computer in uh, industrial engineering and computer science which uh, basically found that it was relevant in, in major restructuring the IT component uh, it seems to be the biggest drawback in major restructuring in in terms of experience uh, you know done um, as you mentioned several uh, uh, restructurings uh, probably more than 11 when you take a lot of little companies that we included as part of several conglomerates. Uh, but um, it, it was a you know, marvelous experience. 
And uh, the idea that I took uh, from the very beginning was, I take this restructuring very professionally. Uh, sometimes I have been the CEO. Sometimes I've been an advisor to the CEO. And I take them very professionally, uh, very honest. And I attempt to respect everybody in the process, including the most humble people, because in, you know, they're never, uh, they never have the responsibility for what we're running the company. It's uh, leadership who is responsible. So we have to focus on leadership in, in every single case. The root of the cause of the problem and the solution is leadership. So with that, uh, thank you for inviting me to your show. I'm most happy to comply with your questions. Yeah, Dad, no, there's no, there's no complying here. The, you don't have to comply to anything. Um, so I guess one thing what we can do is, is, is help define restructuring. Because I think anybody who's listening to this, especially early stage founders, are probably wondering, how's anything that I'm going to listen to this episode applicable to a company of 20 people or less. And, and the original idea behind interviewing was, you know, companies that don't find product market fit very quickly find themselves in a crisis. And so one way of defining restructuring is crisis management, but there's also another angle to it. Now I'm going to ask you to define it for me, but, you know, the idea behind the podcast episode was, you know what, what if um, we could apply some of the lessons from restructuring to helping companies that have not managed to make it so far and who know that they're in a crisis have a framework to get through to the other end. So maybe we can start off by definitions. So how do you define a company that needs restructuring and what are the usual sources of company needing to restructure? The basic definition of restructuring is uh, when you stop creating value or you're no longer in the possible manner to create value. So that's the, I would say, the simplest uh, definition. In the case of startups, of course, uh, when you probably lose the potential of that value creation. And that is something that you need to address very quickly. In a, in a summary, in a nutshell, the definition of a re, when a restructuring is required. So if, if that's when a restructuring is required, what are the top actions you need to take as a CEO in a restructuring? Like that maybe break down the five parts that make up a restructuring. Yes, to a great extent, it depends on the restructuring itself. Every restructuring is a mission impossible, like the movie process. And uh, you have to basically identify and assess what are the root causes of the problem, clearly nail it down. And in that process, you need to communicate, regardless of the size of the organization, large or small. You need to communicate to all the key stakeholders. Of course, key stakeholders are the employees and not only the ones that report to you directly, but all the rest of the staff. That is probably one of the major sources of information. They, they will, you know, if you act uh, honestly and, and, and behave honestly, they will answer, give you the frank answers to your questions but also your potential customers and uh, investors that will also help you understand, you know, what are the root causes of the problem. And with that, you basically have to understand, you know, is it a people problem? Is it a process problem? Is it a technology problem? Is it a product market fit, fit problem? Is it a cultural problem? Depending on the, the nature of the problem, you have to create a plan and prioritize what are you going to do about it? 
and and this you have to as i said from the very beginning you need to be a very good communicator you need to communicate it doesn't mean that you need to talk a lot now you need to listen a lot okay and listening is a key ingredient in this process uh, next uh you know basically you need to assess the quality of the team determine if the team that you have is really the team that will basically deliver uh, what you want to achieve at the end. You know, if you are a startup, is this the team that will really accompany you to achieve the the quantum leap that you want to achieve, uh, that you want to uh, have as a, in mind? Uh, and if not, you have to make the hard decisions very quickly. And what I mean very quickly is very quickly. You don't you don't have time. Uh, with that, uh, once you have the root cause of the problem, you have the priority. You you have the people. You basically have identified the business operating model that you're going to do in order to go from where you are to where you need to be. And, you know, what is the business operating model at the end of the game? What is the business that you're going to be running? You put together a transformation plan. But one key ingredient of that transformation plan is a massively transformation purpose. What are you going to do radically to transform the business? And this is applies to large companies or small companies. It doesn't matter. It, the same thing. Can you give Once me, can you, you have an done example? this, uh, can you give uh, an example of a transformational of purpose? Course, uh, sometimes uh, in an organization, they say, for instance, an ongoing business. I'm, I'm going to bring you an example that might not be necessarily applicable to you, but you can extend the concept to you know your your most of your audience. Let's say a company finds in a radical situation where the process, the the, the prices of the products uh, happened that it drops ninety percent, and this happened to a company, in fact, in Europe. Prices dropped 90% and suddenly the company is a major crisis. And what they did is transform, it was in the oil and gas business, and transform it operating model, basically to transition it to you know, green energy, totally on a period of time. And this is a case that is a, you know, is a business case of a major radical transformation because Everything that you were doing in the past, you say, I'm no longer being going to do it. I'm, I'm going to bring, I'm going to implement a new operating model. I'm going to bring new people. And this is going to be the whole ecosystem is going to change. And the company was successful in transforming itself. And now it's a public company. Okay. So this is a company that used to happen, you know, it's a company in Denmark. But anyway, it applies to every kind of companies. And depending on the situation of why you need to restructure, it, this is uh, this is the premise. Great. So we did the identification assessment of the root cause of the problem. We did assessment of the quality of your team. We went through the definition articulation of the transformational purpose for you and your team. What's next? Well, you need to communicate the plan, and then you have to execute. Execute is, you know, is a lot of perspiration, a lot of perspiration because you need to commit. And this, you have to have a very motivated team. You have to have everybody on board. Everybody has to participate in the in the creation of the plan because everybody has to feel the ownership part of the plan. Otherwise, you will never achieve it. 
And that applies for small companies, small, big companies, every size of company. You have to have everybody on board. Mm. And how do you, like when, we're, when you're going through the identification of the assessment of the root cause, how do you know you're not the problem? I mean, like a lot of founders are first-time CEOs, first-time leaders. How, how do they determine whether, like, am I the problem? Am I the reason why we didn't raise money? Am I the reason why people quit? Like, how do you, how do you know? Well, it's a very relevant question. and. It applies for, you know, the startups or it applies for large companies too, because, uh, you know, we are all human beings. But in order for you to succeed, you need to be honest and transparent. And one way of doing it is uh, achieving, you know, basically securing feedback. And you need to secure feedback for from people inside the company and people outside the company. Outside the company might be potential customers or might be uh, investors. And inside the company, I would recommend that you, you know, ask feedback from the people who are the most critical of your behavior. Because if you act honestly, they will give you honest feedback. And the reason for asking this uh, feedback is because you want to improve. It's not because you want to feel bad yourself. No, you say, I think, you know, if you're honest enough, you say, I think. I am probably part of the problem. What can I do to fix it? What can I do to improve? And this, you need feedback. And 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 how do how do I not create a problem for myself? By like, um, you know, if I ask a colleague, I, I might just actually open up a Pandora's box of arguments. Or if I ask a client, I could lose them if I'm insecure about, you know, what I'm doing. How, how do you prevent that? Well, you depart from. Two basic premises. One, you ask the feedback. You say, I'm going to be honest with you, and I want you to be totally honest, number one. Number two, I want this to improve my own behavior. I want to do it for myself to improve. How can I do? How can I behave better? How can I do things better? What things I need to do to make this business successful? And what can I do to change it quicker? These are the kind of feedback that you can ask, and people will answer you with, if you go humble and you say, I want this to improve, how can I do this better? How can I, the people will give you honest feedback with no consequences. Mm. Right. Well, you know, it's probably worth sort of exploring that further with, with regards to team members that are of, of maybe your close to you and to what you're doing. Cause I think we were discussing earlier that there's, there, there's a challenge when you ask people who report to you that sometimes they can be less honest, but maybe you want to comment on, on maybe who to come to for feedback. And this is, is something that I have done all my life, even in restructuring cases, because uh, you know, you're not God, you're not uh, owner of all the wisdom in the world. So you need to be asking for feedback. And uh, what I found the most successful uh, is the people who gave you the best feedback is the people who are the most critical of your behavior. And uh, I always identify, you know, assuming that they're honest. You know, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to asking this feedback from a jerk. You want to have somebody who is critical of your idea and give you reasons why they are critical. And this is, uh, is a feedback that it will help you, you know. And not only that, it not only helps you uh, be a better leader, 
but also creates a better working condition because uh, and uh, you know if you are the CEO, you have the obligation to provide feedback, but you need to be respectful and you need to follow uh, the, the you know the trust between the parties. You cannot just be giving feedback all the time. You don't have to be, be careful when you provide feedback, but also at the same time, you can ask for feedback. And in that way, that exchange creates uh, a culture of trust. And, you know, you keep it for yourself and you act accordingly. And so that, that creates an environment of trust. And within trust, things, you know, you will find that, that the way you create that culture of trust, there's no fighting. There's no infighting because people, you know, expose the idea. They give you facts. Based on facts, you make decisions. And the team behaves on, on the culture of trust. It's able to create uh, what is best for the organization, not necessarily for their own, let's say, kingdom or their own turf, but yeah. it is what is best for the organization. Well, this is a good, a good segue to one of the examples that you were sharing with me um, about how to drive uh, change in the mindset and drive change in culture. And I think it was a, a company you were sharing with me that, that um, it's a local company to, to where you are in Mexico right now, an auto parts company. Do you want to maybe share that story? I might share two cases. One of this company, and maybe another one of a, a small telephone company, uh, telecom company. Uh, this one of this, uh, this is a company that was purchased uh, right before the crisis of 2008. Uh, by a friend of mine, uh, an auto part company here in Mexico, the subsidiary of a large uh, corporation. The company in 11 years never made a penny. No, 12 years, sorry. 12 years never made a penny. Never native, never reported a profit. And the reason for that is because they will always send from their parent company in the U.S. all the products that they didn't want to do in the U.S. So they were always doing you know, everything that nobody else wanted to do. So that was one of the reasons why the company never reported a profit. So this friend of mine bought it at a distressed value, uh, secured the support from a, 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 a private equity firm, and, uh, uh, and the, in fact, a, a fund, and uh, was able to acquire it right at the beginning of the crisis. We agree on a transformation plan and basically, what uh, we aligned from the very beginning, in fact, the, the, the new owner and chairman of the company, uh, he invited me to participate in, in many of the, of the meetings, is uh, basically communicated to the senior management and middle management of the rest of the organization what we were going to do. You know, the outlines of the plan, uh, we were still perfecting the plan, the outlining of the plan everything that we were going to do, a period of time, what we were going to do. And on top of that, he announced a 10-point, I would say, cultural value, you know, cultural manual of the things that we're allowed to do and things that we're not allowed to do. Basically, clearly aligning the culture that was going to be required and had to do basically with issues around people. Remember, they have been a subsidiary of a larger corporation. So all the, all the company required was extended procedures, uh, a lot of signatures, a lot of approvals. He said, no longer, we no longer 
going to need that. This is how we're going to behave. This is we're going to deal with each case by case, and we're going to be setting the example. We're no longer going to tolerate discrimination. We're not going to. This is a company that had a lot of female personnel. So we're no longer going to tolerate any abuses of any kind. Uh, so it was clearly articulated, and this is what we're going to do. And then we had a follow-up meetings with every member of the senior management so that there was a clear understanding of the plan and of the culture that was required. And, you know, this is what we're going to be doing going forward. And this we did it with every member of the senior management. Uh, there was one case of uh, one member of the senior management that decided that he was not going to, uh, he just say, I cannot do it, what you're asking us to do. And that was the case of a CFO. So, you know, on the spot, the chairman of the board say, look, it's fine, you know, please pack and leave. And uh, as simple as that, because, uh, you know, your service is no longer required. And I don't want anybody being a roadblock inside the company. And uh, that was communicated to everybody. And we told them exactly, you know, he expressed his desire to leave the company. He was not willing to comply with the requirements. And we paid him all his severance. I mean, everything that was due to him. And uh, we brought we brought somebody to take over. Uh, as simple as that. And we continued with our program. And uh, one major change that we had to deal with, the company had a very strong union. You know, at the beginning, the union decided not to meet. But at the end of the day, we forced them to, you know, meet and tell them we told them the plan exactly everything that we told senior and middle manager we told the union and this is this is a culture this is what we're going to be doing we're going to keep you informed we're not going to be asking your permission this is what we're going to be doing and at the end of the day it proved to be a very good move because then the crisis of 2008 came i hit us very badly and in that case, uh, you know, one of the decisions, because we realized that we had limited cash and that we had to conserve our cash for the transformation, we asked uh, the union and we asked all members of the senior and middle management for a concession in terms of uh, their wages. Uh, we were able to implement, with the approval of the government also, uh, uh, a wage reduction of uh, basically. 40% across the board. And uh, that, of course, uh, because the purpose was how do you preserve cash? And we knew that we were going to get out of this crisis. And we decided, I mean, the people have, these were well-trained people. There, were, there was nothing wrong with the training or the, the scale, the capabilities. You know, the plan was a nice plan had all this quill, had, you know, in order to serve the auto industry, you have to understand it has to be quite in terms of quality. It has to meet the highest standards of quality. So in order, so we say, you know, we're not going to reduce 40% of the headcount and then find out that we need the people to bring them back. Of course, there were a few people who left, but that was minor. So people accepted the 40% headcount, but we told them at the very beginning, once we pass this crisis time, we're going to reinstate the wages, okay? Believe it or not, a year and a half later, we're back in full mode, pro in, in full mode production, and we're producing at 100%. And 
not only we did we pay back that money, but we gave very you know uh, handsome bonuses to senior and middle management, and also took good care of the people. So the <clears throat> I would say it's a clear example. How do you change a culture, and how do you deal with difficult circumstances? And uh, because, like in every case, even in in your cases of uh, small uh, venture startups, uh, things happen. And, and the crisis that we have in two thousand and eight, we didn't anticipate it, and but we had to deal with it. We already had, you know. Yeah, that's and and this is a, it's a clear case of a burning platform uh, yeah. example, you know, and uh, and I would say burning platform is a case where you, you know, the, the example refers to a, a, an oil platform in the ocean, where where there is a fire, you know, if you know if you're in the in the middle of the ocean in the North Sea, uh, if you jump into the water, of course you freeze and you die and if you stay in the platform and continue burning you burn so you have to take a lot of decision very quickly and so this was a case of in this case in mexico where we implemented this uh, you know burning platform uh, methodology because we needed a lot of changes very quickly but had to do mostly uh, the changes that we did in terms of technology and processes were minor most of the changes were Related with people, culture, uh, the way to do things, the way to deal with customers, the way to deal with suppliers, the way to, you know, basically that part of the business operating model. Cool. Well, if I had to, if I had to summarize kind of what the key lessons were from that, I would say that, you know, that the, the transformation comes from the top. So it was the new management that highlighted its 10 key points that would define the culture then take very quick action with regards to HR uh, issues where somebody might be having a little kingdom or a little niche that they're like negative and they're preventing this change from happening. Act quickly, fire them quickly. Then think about this transformation in a way as a, especially when when there's limited cash runway as a burning platform and use that as as a way of getting everybody aligned so that you can then do radical things like saying, hey guys, we're gonna run out of money. Uh, we should all take a 40% salary cut to make through these tough times. And I will honor the promise that I will pay you back if um, if things come back to the, a good state. And then also lead from the top in the sense that the salary cut also applies to you because otherwise, well, what's the point of that, right? You lose trust. So I think that those are the, the lessons that I took from that. Um, and I know that you, you also had another example you wanted to share about this uh, telecommunications company. Yeah, this is a case of a company that I was, uh, uh, you know, uh, in this case, uh, I was uh, the CEO. So I was hired to be the CEO, the turnaround CEO. And I was given the report from McKinsey, the consulting company, that said that the company had basically two years to live. That, that's exactly what the McKinsey report read. Uh, because, uh, you know, competitors were coming to this company was, had been so far a monopoly. So concession had been granted to competitors. So we had a time horizon of, I would say, 18 months. That was exactly the time horizon that we had. So based on that, I say, well, I took the, the responsibility. Uh, this, again, mission impossible job. 
transforming uh, company that had been operating as a government subsidiary. It basically, it was, uh, just to give you an idea, the company had seven unions, okay? So representing every class. Extra exciting, so, extra exciting. Okay, it doesn't mean that in a startup, you don't have that. You, you probably don't have union, but you have turfs, you have kingdoms, little kingdoms, okay? That, that of course, is uh, the metaphor here. Not only that, but the senior management was a total mistrust. Nobody trusted anybody. I mean, it was a total, total disarray in terms of trust. The company was, I would say, because it was a monopoly, you know, it was, it had a reasonable, nice PL. Now, here was the case of a company that had grown up basically never done any future investment or innovation, where totally, totally, the customer was ignored, you know, totally ignored. There was no, never any feedback from customers, you know, uh, even though there was, uh, there were two reports that were produced every year, which is was the voice of the customer and the voice of the employees. From a scale from zero to 100, the scale, uh, the voice of the customer was 18%. And the voice of the employees was 29%. Okay, that gives you an idea of how lousy the employees and the customer felt. So uh, very quickly, we, you know, agree on the priority, what the root cause of the problem was. Uh, I did, okay, I'm going to do, these are the changes that I'm going to be introducing. And in this particular case, you know, the first person that I fired was the, the lady that was responsible for all the, she was the director of communications. And the reason why I fired her is that because I found that I, something that I asked her in total trust and confidence, she disclosed it with other people. And I said, look, I cannot allow this to happen. So I fire her on the spot. And, you know, and. I say I'm gonna. We're gonna pay you a whole, all of your severance, but you no longer have the trust of me. I so I cannot have you in the team, and uh, I communicate that to everybody. And you know, it was clear that that was part of the principles of uh, culture that I wanted in the organization. But the issue that I had with the company net management never communicated with the people. All the communication were always through the seven unions. So I say, how do you do a transformation without communicating with the people that you lead? So what I did is, of course, I invited the unions. I talked to them. I told them exactly what we were going to do. And I informed them of what we were going to do. I was not asking for their permission. Are you telling, informed? I'm going to keep communicating. I'm going to be letting you know uh, the same way that I'm communicating to the employees what we're going to be doing. And I expect your support. Believe it or not, I knew exactly because before taking the job, I knew that the union used to make a strike every, there was one strike per month. There was always one strike going on in the union somewhere, but that was a way to keep the management of, of balance. And I took the job on a two-year assignment just to give you an advance notice. You know, I never had one issue with the union, not one single strike in two years. And tell me what I did in order to get everybody on board. And because one of the first things that came to being requested from me was, 
okay, we need more space. We're going to be, you know, we need to expand. We're going to need more office space. We need this and this. And I say one case, and I say, I want to share with you, you know, I was trained in Japan. So I have lived the culture of quality. So one thing that comes from link management is the concept of muda. Muda translated into English is waste. And one thing that I'm going to do is we're going to implement a program that is called 3S from the quality management in Japan, which is basically the first step to reduce muda, okay, to reduce waste. The 3S program calls for order, classification, and uh, cleanliness in English. Those are the, the three words in, in, in Japan. It's called 3S plus one, which is uh, order, cleanliness, and uh, classification. And the plus one means continuous improvement. But anyway, we're going to focus on the three S at this time. And what we did is we brought this to every single director, manager, supervisor, clerk, everybody, everywhere. You know, this is there was a three thousand comp uh, employee company, and believe it or not, in a period of three months, we have produced more than forty trucks of products of things that were no, no longer needed, like for instance. All computers that no longer was being used, stuff that was not needed, you know, files, all kind of stuff. And there was, for instance, one for fluid. There was big one big uh, exchange, no longer being used, that we were able to free up like uh, you know fourteen hundred square uh, meters uh, of a space that was. No longer needed. So we created, and, and believe it or not, people got so enthusiastic about it, they got motivated, and they began to feel it. And through that, and, and I produced a weekly mail to every employee telling them exactly what the objectives were and how we were doing, what we were doing, what are we doing. And everything has to be consistent with the plan. We were always communicating them. And through that, we engaged communication directly with the employees and got everybody, the employees motivated. The union, at one time, the unions came to complain that we were no longer using them to communicate. I tell them, look, I'm copying you every single email that I sent to employees. You please free uh, field to communicate to them. Okay. They say, no, you want, you need to communicate to us so that we can communicate to them. I say, I'm the CEO of the company. And they are employees of the company, so I can communicate with them without nobody in the middle. So you please feel free to communicate to them whatever you feel or your opinions. If you disagree, communicate it to them, to me, whoever you want. But this is a team effort, and I want everybody on board. So that was a platform that we created in order to communicate the rest or the methodology on all the changes that we were able to do in the company. Well, that, that's a, that's a, another great anecdote because you cover uh, slightly different things in the first anecdote, and I think it puts a really good picture of a lot of components that define a restructuring. So one of the things that you talked about was this idea of like a culture of mistrust and how to fix that. And if a company got into a bad situation, there's probably brewing brewing mistrust, and sometimes you need to make some very um, difficult decisions very quickly. And then when you make those decisions, break down communication barriers that were built up. You know, sometimes in that lead up to that failure, there was a whole bunch of walls that got built up. You need to break them down and, and bring everybody along in that change. 
And sometimes as part of that building up, it sounds like there's a lot of waste that can be generated. And that waste in your case was like, you know, stuff, but in a digital startup, it could be like processes or you had a bad manager and there was a TPS report that somebody needed to do and you get rid of the TPS reports. You know, if you've not seen the movie, the office, you have no idea what I'm talking about that. So don't worry about that. But it's like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you, you could probably get rid of as part of that realignment, but it sounds like one, two key things. It sounds like one, it has to come from the top. So you can't have, you know, certain management levels opting out of this stuff. And the other thing that it sounds like is that it's frequent communication with everyone. And, and you have to skip any kind of uh, pretentious uh, level of like hierarchy. So maybe, maybe transitioning away from these examples into implementation of these in, 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 in an ongoing basis. So first of all, what, what time frame should you, should, should somebody think about in terms of, you know, okay, fine. They've just listened to this podcast. They're like, okay, I get it. I think I'm going to, I know what I'm going to do. What, what, what's a reasonable amount of time to like expect change to happen? Well, you have to consider two basic factors. One, how much money you have. Second, uh, the extent of the changes. Uh, most of the most of the cases that I've been involved had to do, I would say, from nine to eight months, eighteen months. Okay, because in sometimes require complex, you know, changes. Like for instance, in this case of the company in Trinidad Tobago, it require a major undertaking in terms of infrastructure build out and computers and you know the, all the IT that were required to modernize a company. So it takes time and, and a lot of investment, and we needed to secure the funding to finance all this capital investment. Uh, but in the, the case of, for instance, the other case of Mexico, but the Mexican auto park company, the changes that were focused particularly on culture and people, uh, we were able to implement those in very relatively short period of time, I would say. If you went from day one and you went six months later, the culture was totally different, but a radical, radical change. And that it was because we had no more money. You know, we, that was the time horizon that we had for that. And we had the beauty that the company was a tier one supplier to the auto industry. So the processes and, and the infrastructure was of good quality. So it had to do mostly around people, culture, a strategy, business operating model, which is something that you can fix relatively quickly, you know, and, and so that, that's basically the parameters of the time horizon, uh, which you draft a plan and then, and here, here again, be prepared for major contingencies. And this is part of the plan is risk assessment. It doesn't mean a committee or, a, you know, it, it, it just someone, Sometimes the CEO himself say, look, what are the risks? What, you know, how do I deal with this risk and how do I overcome and go around, get around them because I need to incorporate them into my cash flow. Hmm. All right. Well, the, the last question, I think this, this kind of wraps up the, all the concepts really well. And you alluded to this earlier when you were talking about three S's plus, plus one, which is this idea of migration from this burning platform to something more sustainable. So walk us through, because you know a crisis can sometimes divide people, but many times it unites people. But then keeping that momentum, you know, like when the crisis is mostly resolved, keeping that drive. How do you how do you 
build from that? Well, uh, first of all, you have to understand that you cannot keep the crisis management style forever. You know, people will burn out. You, know, you cannot be working extensive hours for an indefinite period of time. So you have to put an end to that. And, and you have to have that in mind and communicate when do you expect that to happen, okay? It doesn't mean that you are committed to that day, but you have to create expectation and you have to make every single effort to meet that date. Now, before you reach that date, you have to put in a, a, a plan in place to transition from the burning platform methodology into something that creates value long-term and keeps the exponential growth that you want. And you, you know, the, 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 all the benefits of innovation, all the benefits of uh, continuous improvement, all the benefits that are associated with uh, long-term venture to survive and to succeed. Uh, you know, to have the kind of growth that you are expecting, assuming that it is uh, the digital world of it is an exponential growth, you have to have that in mind. And in order to do that, you have to put the foundation from the very beginning and there was a period of time and you have to have that in stages. Like for instance, the 3S plus one. Uh, for instance, you want to empower people. And if you want to create uh, innovation, the best way to do it is create a program of continuous improvement, okay? How do you go about creating a program of continuous improvement, of course? It all, you know, and this, of course, uh, for us is, uh, you know, it's uh, kind of, uh, you know, when you talk agile, continuous improvement, it sounds like terms, but you have to understand the context where they come from. Uh, in Japan, and, and this is something that people learn a lot in a school at home, you know, like the 3S program is implemented at home. This is not something that you teach at college level. No, this is something part of the DNA, part of the culture. So a lot of things that you need to incorporate is, for instance, this program of continuous improvement, it's something that you need to start like at a senior level, you know, you have to create your improvement teams at senior level and mid and then middle managing and then a lower level, you go back to, you know, what used to be called, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the Kaizen circles, okay? The continuous improvement circles. Now, the Western version of that is what we call agile. Okay, and, and of course, it's a methodology in itself. And, but if you don't have senior management commitment and understanding of the methodology, Agile doesn't work. You know, in my experience, and I have seen companies all over the world that have attempted to implement Agile uh, only at the floor level without senior and middle management involved or committed or understanding of what the methodology means. And it's a total failure. So you have to have uh, across the company uh, culture uh, to foster this kind of innovation. And once you are able to do that, then you will see the benefits that the continuous improvement and trust can create in terms of innovation, in terms of uh, cost reduction, in terms of revenue, new, new revenue sources, 
Now, this is a model that is never ending because it feeds in itself and it, it creates wealth and it creates economic value uh, because of the dialogue, the trust dialogue that exists at all levels of the organization, everybody contributing with the ecosystem, not only within the company, but also with the ecosystem. You ask feedback and, you know, copy, steal, do whatever from the ecosystem in order to assimilate into organization. The same thing you depart from a culture of scarcity into a culture of abundance, where you share some of the benefits that you are having with the rest of the ecosystem so that it creates more value and you can help yourself and uh, create you know, more growth and have a, a larger ecosystem. And of course, uh, that brings uh, some complex issues, but that's part of the, you know, the benefits of creating these cultures. And that you can, you can sustain that as uh, basically as Colin says on uh, creating something to last. And that's, that's basically the, the lessons that I would learn from, uh, that I would imply from the, the crisis mode that you have at the beginning until you transition to a, larger scale and longer time uh, company. Now that's that's a that's an excellent point to end on that. Basically it's once the major change has been completed, you need to very quickly establish the habit of continuous improvement across every member of the team. It's like and 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 to some extent delegate or empower really I think you use the word empower is empower them to come up with ways of of continuously improving their function downwards, sideways, upwards, everywhere, it sounds like, including external with suppliers. And at the end of the game, is creating value everywhere you can. Yeah. The concept is how do you invade the concept of creating value? Great. Well, thanks, Dad. I know that we could probably go through 500 other stories because I know you've had tons of <laughs> fun and exciting stories throughout your life. Um, and, and I'll share your socials and everything on, on the show notes. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Um, and till next time, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having me.